Podcast Movies Edition, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to the Movies Podcast for September. Coming up, we look at Hannah, The Ward, and we discuss prequels. And joining me on the podcast this month is Simon, Chris, Steve... Kaz and Mark. So a full house tonight. Good evening, guys. Hello. Good evening. Evening, Phil. evening, Phil. So let's kick things off as we mean to go on. Uh, disc review from Kaz, Hannah. Right. Well, I've been anticipating this for a long time and uh, and I'm not at all disappointed with the Blu-ray release of this film. I saw it back in the cinema and it stands up tremendously. Um, the UK Blu-ray is region free. Uh, it comes with a, with a fantastic uh, transfer. Uh, looks spectacular in all areas, so much so that I think I gave it my first 10 out of 10 this year. Might be my first or my second, but it's it's one of those marks that you seldom actually give out. Um, it's, in my opinion, tremendous all round. There's practically nothing to fault on it, and uh, it's it's reference quality. So it's the kind of thing which you could just pick up the movie for that, but there are plenty of other reasons to pick up this disc. Uh, not least the um, equally impressive DTS HD Master Audio track that accompanies the movie. This benefits from having one of my favourite soundtracks of all time and uh, my favourite soundtrack of this year so far um, by the Chemical Brothers. Um, and I think it perfectly seamlessly integrates with the sound effects to uh, create um, the best accompaniment you could imagine for this film. Uh, it's a technique which I noticed, I think, um, a Japanese director, Takashi Kitano, uses in some of his films, where you integrate the actual sounds that people are making by tapping, or uh, the, at one stage it's the beeping of a, a radio transmitter, and you integrate that into the actual score. Uh, Chemical Brothers did that tremendously, and the end result comes out superbly here. Uh, so much so that I got the Blu-ray and then immediately went out and downloaded the soundtrack. That also got 10 out of 10 for me. Again, demo quality. This is a demo quality disc. Yeah, on the on the extras we get uh, quite a full set. First up's the the feature commentary by the director. He's quite a hesitant chap. He's got lots of ums and ahs going in there, which can be a bit frustrating. But he actually delivers uh, one of the most honest and refreshing commentaries that I've come across. He he takes note of um, everything that he might have done wrong, uh, things that the cast and the crew suggested to him that he may not have taken heed of, which second time around he would have changed. Some some really clever ideas in there, and some really uh, honest reflections. On, on how he could have made a perfect film. And the irony is, this is a lot better. Uh, this is, a, in my opinion, a great movie, whereas the, the majority of commentary tracks you get where the director is praising his work, you're sitting there going, well, no, that really wasn't very good at all. So it's quite a refreshing commentary from this guy, uh, as well as a selection of uh, featurettes, which, again, 
take a, a more honest approach. Sure, there, there are a few that are more promotional, but they're generally, by and large, done in a different way, in a more original way, um, and easier to watch and enjoy as a result. The bit that a lot of people might be interested in is the uh, deleted scenes and the alternate ending. It's worth checking out. It's not a, a must-have for this disc. You can't, can't read the back and go, oh, it's got an alternate ending. This will change my life. Um, it, it's just an interesting addition. Um, but all in all, a great set of extras, which I gave an 8 out of 10. Um, the movie itself, I, I, I'm hoping I'm preaching to the converted here, is amazing. I, I would say that first time around when I saw it in the cinema, I came out and it took me a while to digest it. And uh, I wasn't sure about this, I wasn't sure about that. But uh, second time around, on reflection, uh, I, I gave it a, a 9 out of 10. For me, it, it edged up from the 8 to a 9 because I thought it was a great movie, driven by a fantastic performance. And uh, I spent ages trying to figure out how to pronounce this girl's name. I think it's oh, yeah. Saoirse. So uh, Saoirse Ronan is the, um, is the lead actress who, who takes on the role, despite how it's actually spelt. I, I, I didn't have any idea how to pronounce that before, but she's fantastic in it. Uh, very young age, 16 when she filmed it to play a 16-year-old character. Uh, backed up ably by Eric Barner, who's on top form, and an eclectic cast of, of oddball characters that almost all play against type. And it, this movie is so great for me because it, it blends a whole bunch of different genres together and creates a, a palatable, entertaining, exciting mix. And they're genres that just shouldn't work. You've got a coming-of-age drama in there, you've got a road movie, you've got a, a revenge thriller, and you've got an out-and-out out sort of action-adventure in, in the style of something like Bourne. All the while, the whole thing is, uh, is, is, has got this um, allusions to fairy tales, um, running throughout, which which gives is a further sort of mystical edge, and the end result for me was great, um, and definitely worked better second time round. So, in my opinion, you should pick up this Blu-ray. Now, Kaz, I read your review, and uh, I was almost about to to click buy um, to buy the disc, and then I spoke to Steve this afternoon, and Steve said, "Well, I'm glad I didn't buy it. I watched it at a friend's." Well, yeah, I did say that. Um, I actually saw it last night for the first time. And and I did enjoy it, but I'm not sure I entirely understood it. <laughs> because, well, like you say, there's lots of um, uh, references to fairy tales within the film. Um, and and it is a mixture of different kinds of movies all lumped, lumped together. It's like a road movie and a coming-of-age movie and a thriller, which is all quite interesting. And, and I did enjoy it. And I like the fact that because Joe Wright... Joe Wright's not really an action director. I like Joe Wright's movies. I like Atonement. I love Atonement. And I like Pride and Prejudice. Some of the action scenes are fantastic because he resisted the urge to do the shaky cam, fast editing thing that's been taking over action films for the last three or four years since the Bourne movies first came out. Um, There's a brilliant, brilliant single-take fight scene in the subway that I absolutely adored. I thought it was superb. Not only was it impressive technically, but you could always tell what people were and you could always tell what was going on in the action. Um, which is so often not the case in action films these days. So whilst I, uh, it is, though, quite surreal, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a different movie. It, it, uh, I, put, I think I put in my review, it will be unlike anything you'd ever seen before. So I do appreciate there'll probably be people who see it and go, what the hell happened there? 
Um, but I'm hoping that the majority of people still fall on the, well, that was worth watching side of things. Uh, with a few sort of slipping into the, that was amazing, and a scant few hopefully slipping into, I absolutely hated that. Okay, so I'll uh, I'll click buy and I won't listen to Stephen Future. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. I loved it. I haven't Thank got the, uh, the Blu-ray of it yet, but I, I totally adored the movie. I thought her performance was unbelievably good uh, for such a young girl to carry out some of the moves that she did, uh, just on, on a purely visceral uh, sort of fight sequence junkie, um, you know, sort of vogue. She was brilliant. The fight scenes were just tremendously uh, kinetic, fast, powerful, brutal. Um, but the emotional side of it too. I mean, she's a bit of a, a first. You, you don't know who or what she really is. She's an emotional um, blank card, isn't she? But gradually, little details get filled in, and you begin to really warm to the girl and feel, you know, not giving too much away. You begin to feel very, very sorry for her and a little bit frightened of her as well at the same time. So it's, it's an amazing performance. I was going to say, uh, the whole you... mention has to go to the, the girl that played the other girl, Sophie, is it? Oh, she was hysterical yeah. as well. Basically playing yeah. the same character she played in the movie Tamara Drew, but she did um, which, a film which she actually stole, uh, playing jailbait Jodie. And then this one, again, she, she, she's a quite memorable character and, and very funny at times. Although that still is the annoying part of the film for me. It's, it's a necessary part, but I just wanted to cut to the chase. Let's fight again. Let's see some more kinetic action scenes. Like, that's what makes it different, Chris. <laughs> yeah. And I, well, and, and, and I do applaud it. Um, but I think the thing I, I loved most of all besides the action was the fairy tale illusion, the big bad wolf and all this. It's, it's a bit heavy handed, some of the imagery, especially yeah, towards the end. But, well, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I do like it's such a, as Cass quite rightly said, one of a melange of, uh, of genres to throw together. You'd never have thought it. Espionage, you know, tinged with SF, thrown with Brothers Grimm. It just shouldn't work. And yet it does. Mind you, for some people, it might not work so well. Might take a second viewing. How how well did this do at the cinema? Because I, I, it just seems like it was only a few, well, less than a couple of months ago that, that we were discussing the cinema release. I think critically, it did. It it got a lot of praise, um, but the fan, well, the, the audiences didn't seem to get what it was trying to tell them. Is it this? Is it that? And it, it sort of divided audiences. So it did seem to come and go. And yet, you know, a lot of critical plaudits for it. A lot of people I know saw it and loved it. So you know. There was a market for it, without a doubt. It does seem like one of those films where perhaps word of mouth, because people don't necessarily get it, or is it down to the way that it was marketed? Because, I mean, you, you talked about you know wanting to get to the next fight sequence there, Chris. Well, that's just me. <laughs> no, but, I mean, if, if you look at things like you know the trailers, which are, are you know huge for building up anticipation in a film, it did make it look like it was basically born with a, with a girl in it. You know, it, it did look like it was kind of, you know, heart-stopping, you know, real fast-paced action throughout. And yet every yeah. all the praise that you read about or hear about with regards to people who, who rate it, it's all to do with the kind of um, mixing of genres and, and the, the whole kind of fairy tale ethos. Yeah, it definitely wrong-foots people. But, you know, those <laughs> elements are there, are there. That's not to say it isn't fast-paced, though. I, I, I would say that, that you get an action or a chase sequence fairly often in the movie it doesn't leave you for too long uh, even even when they're with the family or even um afterwards when she's then on the run there's it interjects like what's happening with the dad uh, and he gets that seminal fight scene that uh, you talk, yeah. uh, talked about earlier which is 
interjected with her chatting with the family. And so I don't think it's not an outright action. You're absolutely right. But I think it finds a way of building character without losing momentum. Um, so I don't think it's it's really uh, such horrendous marketing. I, don't, I, I didn't feel disappointed when I saw the film. You're right, I probably didn't feel that it was another Bourne movie. But, um, but in a way, it was, uh, it was better for not sticking to that. Um, and on a, on a financial front, looking it up, it, it was made for only 30 million. So it has managed to make 62. So I, I would assume that's an outright success. Well, doubled its money, so it must be. So that's Hannah. Uh, if you want to read Kazi's review, it's up on the site, avforums.com forward slash movies. We're going to move over to Chris. Chris, tell us all about The Ward. And it's interesting that Joe Dante, John Carpenter and John Landis all seem to be turned at roughly the same sort of time to the, the genre we know and love them for. Um, and, yeah, Carpenter's The Ward. Yeah, a long time no see for Mr. Carpenter. We'll discuss the film in a bit, but um, for now... Uh, we'll look at Arclight, oh, sorry, Arclight, Arc Entertainment's uh, US uh, Blu-ray release of it, which is a uh, region-free uh, version, and it's in 2.35 to 1, which is interesting because this was due to come out in the UK quite some time ago. Uh, I think Warner were doing it, and Warner botched it. They brought it out in um, a rather cropped 178 version, which was going to play absolute havoc with the compositions that, you know, a master like John Carpenter was going to obviously compose for the screen. Uh, that got whisked off from the shelves straight away and hasn't surfaced in the UK as yet. This one is spot on with its 235. Um, and it looks reasonable. It's an ABC um, encode. Uh, it's a bit of a drab sort of colour um, tone to the movie. It favours his old vintage sort of pale blue, mysterious sort of vogue. Uh, it's very sort of, um, it likes shadow. There's not a, lot, a great deal of colour to it. We have scenes of fire. They look quite vivid, but they're, they're a rarity to it. And detail isn't fantastic. It, it's okay. It's okay. It's, it's not making any specific errors. But, um, I mean, it's not like DNR scrubbed it to hell and back. But it's just, um, it's the way it's filmed. It just doesn't lend itself to a lot of finite information in the frame. And, uh, but the, he's trying to evoke, certainly with uh, the cinematography, the old feel of his, you know, his, his classics like Halloween and The Thing. The Thing especially is the one that this film seems to uh, evoke memories of, uh, most especially. Uh, lots of gliding, prowling camera shots, low down, down these um, uh, hospital wards and corridors. Very sort of spooky, very slowly sort of prowling shots, gliding. Beautiful, but you haven't got the depth to it. You haven't got the depth that you would see in, say, the, the base, the US base in the thing, or the police station in Assault on Precinct 13. doesn't seem to have that sort of three-dimensionality to it. But, you know, it's still a lovely-ish sort of um, image. He doesn't tinker with films. And this ties in a bit with the, uh, the whole Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring debacle at the moment. You know, the green tint, or, you know, should it be there, should it not be there? Well, he mentions about people these days going on about, uh, you know, coloured time in their stuff after the, uh, the film has been shot, tinkering around for home video releases and then tinkering around again for the, a reissue, messing about with stuff. He's done it himself with Halloween, uh, which, which, which I thought was a fantastic image on that, the way he, he did that one. This one, he says, well, I haven't tinkered with this at all. You know, the, the blue is, is the lighting, which this guy, this cinematographer, Yarden Orbach, <laughs> never heard of him <laughs> before this movie. 
Um, he said, it's, it's all the lighting on the set. I don't think he's telling uh, the full truth there. This film does look as though it's had some sort of post-production tinkering just, just to alter the, uh, the aesthetic slightly. Um, so, you know, sound-wise, yeah, we're in a, a different sort of ball game here. Uh, he's got a DTS HD Master Audio 5.1, and it's, uh, it's pretty good. There's a lot of good stuff in this. It's obviously a film that's driven by a lot of stingers, things coming out you know, from behind you, things coming out at the end of the frame, at the end of the other side of the, the frame, and that uh, very sort of uh, spooky, traditional haunted house sort of fair. Very insistent, 80s-style, Carpenter-esque score as well uh, by a fellow called Mark Killian. Uh, John Carpenter didn't do it this time because, as he quite rightly said, I, I, I'm getting too old now. I can't wear so many hats these days. I can't write, direct, produce, and score these films anymore. So he handed, handed the ropes to this guy, and he comes out with what is a very sort of Carpenter-esque sort of um, soundtrack. Uh, pounding, um, insistent, metronomic tones and pulses and then you've got the ambient sort of um, spookiness uh, and then crescendo is built up and it, it, like that comes across on this track very well indeed i like that dialogue never falters either there's uh, no, no trouble with the speech it's a lot of dialogue in the film obviously you know, the, all these girls who are trapped inside this, this psychiatric ward um, and you know all their interactions all that comes across well could people are very quietly spoken in it um, and the disc picks up on that reasonably well. You know, there's, there's no there's no loss there. Uh, stereo spread across the front is pretty good. Rear surround stuff. Uh, yeah, there's a few little stingers thrown in. It's not not amazing. There's not you're not not going to be blown out of your seat with this stuff. Um, extras wise, well, <laughs> you're not talking much here. What have we got? We've got a trailer and we've got a, a commentary. Now, fans of John Carpenter know that this guy can deliver fantastic. Uh, verbal chat tracks, uh, usually with his, his old screen alter ego of Kurt Russell. They're, they're quite phenomenal commentary tracks, those. This one is joined by uh, one of the actors, Jared Harris, who plays one of the, uh, the doctors in the, uh, in the ward. Jared's son of Richard Harris. Uh, and sadly, this is one exceptionally dull commentary track because he's been away from the game for a long, long time and he's reveling in the fact that, yeah, you know... I've come back to it now, but I enjoyed my time away. I was just playing video games and watching TV, and you know, I really, I'd, I'd had enough of the whole thing. And then they go into discussing, well, as an actor, what do you like from a director? Well, I like this. As a director, what do you like from an actor? Well, I, I like this. And they don't discuss the movie, hardly at all. They talk about what is, you know, the whole thing about being an actor and being a director. And a few anecdotes here and there, but basically it's a very dry run. And I was bored to tears by it, um, which is a crying shame because, um, you know, Carpenter's normally on the ball with these things. Um, Film-wise, right, well, it's, uh, I'm afraid you kind of know where it's going to go. Well, I like the ward. It basically, you start off with a, with a girl who you don't know what, what's happened, where she is, what she's doing, running through the, the woods, she comes to an old farmhouse. She sets it ablaze. The cops come and pick her up, whisk her off to a, a, a mental institute, and she then un gets put onto this psychiatric ward, and they begin to do tests on her and try to cure her. We don't know who she is. We don't know why she's there, apart from this burning, burning down the farmhouse. But apparently someone in that ward has gone missing, and there's something else floating about, which could well be picking the, the other girls on the ward off one by one. Uh, now, already, I think a few people will know exactly where this is going to go. Uh, if you had mentioned a few of the titles, films like 
identity, Shutter Island, you're going to spot this one a mile away. And it's a bit of a shame. It's almost like John Carpenter hasn't seen these films. And he's, but the way I viewed it, he's doing his own take on it. And it was just good to see the guy come back to a genre that he once was a master of before dropping the ball so, so catastrophically with things like vampires and uh, ghosts of Mars. When you get to the end of it, and this is the point I really want to make, is that although you might sit through this and think, I know where this is going, I know what's going to happen here, and I don't want that cheat at the end, I don't want that rug pulled from under my feet and being trapped. But uh, the film works, and it works for a second viewing, and even a third viewing, because I've watched it a few times now, and all the, you know, the T's get crossed, the I's get dotted, and it works out, and it's a different experience, sort of each time, a little bit like Sixth Sense, it's a different film the second time you watch it. It's not great by horror film standards, but it's great to see that guy back in charge of, you know, and knowing what he, what he can do, knowing how far he can push things, and he's just getting used to it all again. So hopefully there'll be more down down the road. Yeah, um, but interesting that Carpenter commented on, I mean, you, you point out, that Chris, that he might have been fiddling around post-production with the colour timing, but it's interesting he points out, because it is something that's really starting to annoy me with modern movies, the constant digital uh, intermediate tinkering with the colour uh, after the fact, of which probably the most famous example is, is Lord of the Rings. Um, I mean, the Potter films uh, were borderline black and white at times. There's so much desaturation and colour tinkering going on in those. See, as you've mentioned already, Chris, it's good to see uh, John Carpenter back and good to see Joe Dante back and also good to see John Landis back in the last year. But what what is also interesting is that they started to remake old Carpenter movies like Halloween, for example. And most recently, they've got the prequel uh, to The Thing coming out uh, in a couple of months time. Although I have a sneaky suspicion it's more of a sequel in disguise than actually a real prequel. But I know you're, you're quite keen on, on, on this. It um, looks more like a remake, actually, than a, yeah, a yeah, basically, or, or sorry. a sequel. Yeah, to, it seems, sorry, seems to have all the elements that we liked from the first movie, which, you know, it's not a bad thing. Now, initially, I wasn't happy about, you know, how can you possibly, you don't want to see what happened in the Norwegian camp, because that element of mystery is fantastic. It's part of the, the great enigma of the movie, the t- movie itself. Likewise, you don't want to see a sequel to it. It's got one of the best endings that a, film, a horror film can have, which leaves it all to your imagination. You don't want to be told. So likewise, seeing the Norwegian camp, it just adds this huge aura of mystery to it. And I thought after a while, I read more about it and then I saw footage from it and stills from it. Then I saw the trailer and I was really, really blown away by it. I thought, wow, this could actually work. Um, It does seem to evoke the exact style, look, filming techniques and mood of Carpenter's film, which is obviously what you want. As you you pointed out, it's a remake, isn't it? It's under under the guise of a prequel. It's basically a remake. Yeah, possibly. Um, I also, I always wanted to find out how that guy, that frozen guy who slit his throat and both wrists, how he did that, how he came to be <laughs> in that predicament. Always, and hopefully you're going to find that out. But I keep hearing little bits. Now, and obviously, none of us have seen the film yet, so we don't know exactly how it's going to pan out. But as far as the thing, the new version of the thing seems to be, uh, there's a lot of rumours that it kind of wraps itself around um, Carpenter's version. There's rumours saying that you're going to see Childs and McCready getting picked up at the end. Uh, you're going to have all the stuff at the Norwegian camp, but things where the, obviously the Yanks go there, and then things happening maybe elsewhere, but concurrently with the events that happen in the American camp. So it's kind of a prequel, uh, a simultaneous, and possibly a sequel as well, all rolled into one. Looking at that trailer, there seems to be something at a much bigger base as well, because certainly that Norwegian camp that you see in, in the thing, 
uh, doesn't look much in the, in the thing, does it? But in, in this version, it looks a far more elaborate sort of base. It would need to be, obviously. I know well, half it's all bent down and blown up. I, but th- I think in the original film, it's the original base, the American base, after they burnt it down at the end of the filming, they then shot all the Norwegian scenes in the wrecked out yes, it American is. set. Yes, yeah. It doesn't look like much of an establishment, does it? But you look at the trailer, it seems to have, um, you've got, when you see that landing strip there and you see all sorts of other things. Now, is that, maybe it's just McMurdo Sound, the headquarters where, you know, the, the, the token female, um, again, I was against that initially, but hadn't thought about it more, you know, maybe that would be the ne- the next logical step to have to have some woman in there. I don't know, because you know, it just adds a bit of variety, doesn't it? Uh, maybe that's McMurdo Sound where she gets on the helicopter and flies out there. I don't know, but you certainly see more of the alien spacecraft as well, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I mean, it, it's, it, I suppose it does raise an interesting point, which is I think about prequels in general. Is you know, are they are they, are they a valid uh, effort when you when you problem with them is you always know how they're going to end i mean as you say if they've tried to find a way around that by uh not just covering the events in the norwegian camp but also perhaps covering some of the events that are going on simultaneously when in the american camp and then possibly afterwards it's well, kind of the same. <laughs> yeah sounds like a good idea to me but well prequels yeah um they walk a very sort of tight rope don't they because if they're done exceptionally well uh, you know, a, a prequel made nowadays to a much older film, the effects are going to be better. Maybe the filming techniques are going to be better. Uh, you're going to have a better calibre of, of actor, perhaps. So if, the, if the, the prequel is actually a better made movie than the original film, it, it can damage the original film, you know, quite, quite somewhat. And if it's a very, very poor film, you know, it can also have the effect of, you know, mm, this, the, the original film won't feel as complete and as perfect as it once did because it's tarnished by the, you know, the Ted that they've done, you know, as the preamble before it. Are there good prequels? Are there any good prequels? Well, my, my, my money would go on Godfather Part 2, which is supposed part prequel, part sequel, and The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, which is, despite what you say, Chris, a semi-prequel to um, uh, Piss for Dollars. <laughs> yeah, we did discuss this, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, we have already discussed this offline. <laughs> because I, well, I, I think know, I won the it, argument, because you conceded. No, I didn't concede. I said that. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, chronologically, the good, the bad, and the ugly does take place before a fistful of dollars because it takes place during the American Civil War. And yes, during the course of the film, Eastwood's character accumulates the costume that he's wearing. Uh, at the end of that film, is the same costume yeah. he's wearing at the beginning of Fistful of Dollars. You're, you're assuming that, that Sergio Leone was wanting this to be a prequel to the, the well, certainly. Well, I don't think there's an overt prequel. I'm just saying that it, it does take place prior to that and it's the same character, therefore. Well, we, we agree on that. It is definitely. This, I mean, we all know it's a, he's Clint's playing the same character. Clint's playing, you know, the iconic uh, drifter in all the movies. I mean, it's a bit of a pointless argument because, as we discussed uh, well, off the podcast, but um, Sergio Leone said about the gathering together of all you know, the the pawn show and all the other stuff was a sort of you know a nod to the fans. Look, I've set this in a civil war. And films, westerns weren't being set in the Civil War during this period. So a hell of a lot of audiences, especially in Europe, would not have understood what that war was about. And that sounds bizarre, but that was his thinking at the time. They won't understand it. Is it a Vietnam allegory? What, what, what is he going on about? What was this war? Why are they there? You know, why, they didn't have a war before. So to remind them that, yes, basically we're in the same sort of atmosphere, the same sort of setting. We're doing the same sort of story with the same sort of characters. He just threw those bits in to try and keep the fans, you know, obviously on his side. I mean, yeah, we all know that 
Clint is the same character basically throughout all three movies. You know, he doesn't have you know much of a parameter, does he? A, a few dollars more, he's playing a completely different character. That has nothing to do with the first four dollars. <laughs> different character uh, it's, and that's one of the reasons why the same guy is playing the baddie in both films even though he dies in both of them well yeah uh, well this is the thing again because the, the spaghetti westerns throughout the rule book you know he would have the same people appearing in in the next movie even though they've been killed before and you know it's Jean-Marie Volante playing almost the same sort of you know, Mexican psychotic as you play the yeah. fistful as he does in a few dollars more it's and Van Cleef playing a good guy in, in a few dollars more and then going back to you know what could be the prequel as you say uh, and he's a completely different character and he's an absolutely vile swine of a guy uh, but it's it's spaghetti spaghetti doesn't have that, those sorts of standard conventions spaghetti just did its own sort of thing and, and that's what made it so unique and so different from you know american horse operas so basically we've got one possible good prequel Oh, well, 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 what about uh, Temple of Doom? Mm. Well, again, I, don't, I can't stand Temple yeah. of Doom. <laughs> but can you, again, you come back to the question of what constitutes a prequel. If you've just basically filmed anything that could be a sequel, but you just say, ah, but the year is X years before, does it actually count in any way as a prequel? I mean, yeah, you know, right. if, if all you're saying is chronologically this happened before something else realistically you could say well well it's a sequel well it's anything you know if, if you stuck in credits at the beginning of you know any one of a number of sequels and just said ah this actually happened beforehand would that make well, it suddenly people, a prequel clearly has to be you've had the original story and then you've gone back and told part of that story which is maybe alluded to or you know in in the first film, and you're going to tell the backstory to that, or at least the backstory of the characters who are going to be in that movie. It has to be you know, connected which, in some way. To they're the going to be connected, yeah. Film. Got to be, surely. So, uh, for example, um, well, I mean, the classic examples of early prequels, I mean, obviously The Godfather was the first was the first film to ever use the term prequel, actually, in, in its marketing. And I believe Coppola said that the guy who came up with that idea was, guess what, George Lucas, who said, well, it's kind of like a prequel, isn't it? Um, they definitely used that term when they were describing um, Temple of Doom, although as you point out, I think it was Simon, said that, that, that really it could have been a sequel. It's got no real relevance to Raiders at all. But the first real big prequels that I can never remember were in 79, which was Zulu Dawn, which clearly yeah, takes well, place before Zulu, the Battle of Isandawana, and Butch and Sundance, the early years, which is my sort of shorthand for a misguided adventure. Because the whole the point thing is, of Cassidy and Sundance Kid is Robert Redford and Paul Newman. If you haven't got them in it, what's the point? <laughs> Zulu Dawn is not a prequel. Because the Zulu and Zulu Dawn are both based around genuine historical events. So Zulu is a genuine story in its own right. But Zulu Dawn, just because it happened the day before, it's not a prequel to the events, you know, film-wise. It's, they're both the same sort of story. Have I just defeated my own argument there? But surely, guys, the, the term um, prequel is, is like uh, Steve alluded to, it's, it's a, a modern term um, when it comes to cinema. And if you look at uh, cinema today. I mean, we're going to talk about George Lucas a little bit later on, but he's done three prequels, and we've now got a, a host of pre prequels. Or, well, I mean, the, the one at the cinema at the minute is uh, is Rise of the Planet of the Apes. So, I mean, is is that a prequel, or is that just a retelling of the story from uh, a point before the original film? It's a semi prequel. 
<laughs> because yeah. in, in a way, it's, it's in a way they're sort of reimagining what happened with Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, which had already been been done. But Conquest of the Planet of the Apes will in fact be a prequel to the original Planet of the Apes, because that was telling the story of how the apes came to be in, in you know, obviously intelligent and take over the world that Charlton Heston discovers. So in actual fact, that was a prequel even then. It was a prequel to that, but it was a sequel to Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, so, yeah. Bit of both. Is what, but can I just say, is what we've basically discovered through this conversation that really to kind of get something that's uh, of significant quality and that actually kind of hits a note with audiences, you need a certain amount of treading the same ground. I, when you come back to, you know, Butch and Sundance, the early years, primarily those those stories that have, just tried to tell the beginnings of characters have usually fallen fairly flat. You know, they, they, we keep on coming across these terms, you know, semi-sequel or it's part sequel, part remake, or it tells part of the same story from a different angle. Really, there are very few proper prequels out there that just take one storyline and decide that you will tell the story of those characters up to the point of the original film. Yeah, I, th- I think the problem normally yeah. is that it's rarely an artistic endeavour to make a prequel or even a sequel for that matter. Yeah, it's all, Usually it's, it's driven money, by... Yeah, exactly. I, and the reason that The Godfather Part 2 works is because the rise of the father is juxtaposed with the fall of the son. And in fact, for my money, it's a much, much better film and a far more resonant and deeper film than The Godfather because of the way it's structured. But it only works in that structure. And if you just... When they did what they did do for TV, take it and put it in a chronological order, um, it's not it's not anywhere near as good. You know, you no, need and- to see the two, the way, the way The Godfather Part Two works. You know, you need to see, you know, the juxtaposition of those scenes and the way it trans- moves from present, day, well, 1950s New York back to the turn century New York, um, and and comparing um, De Niro's performance against against Pacino's performance and the two different type of men that they are. Um, that's the that's why it works. If they had just made a prequel set in 1900, I don't think it wouldn't have been anywhere near as good as the film yeah. they actually did make. Because it's artist that because that, that was an artistic decision, um, whereas things like Butch and Sundance, the early years, are just an effort to try and make some money off the back of uh, of the original film, albeit ten years later, which is another problem. You know, obviously too much time had passed but by then. That's the same problem with 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 the Star Wars prequels. Really, you know how it ends. Do you really care? This is backstory you never really wanted to know about in the first place. It was just filler. For, you know, to, to, to put it put it put it behind the actual events taking place in Star Wars itself. I don't know because there was there was a lot of stuff discussed in Star Wars, the original trilogy, such as the Clone Wars, that when he said he was going to make the prequels, I think a lot of us thought, Well, this is going to be kick ass. If we're going to see the Clone Wars and that kind of thing, it's going to be an action packed kick ass uh, set of prequels. And, and now you course, wish he hadn't because he's yeah, soiled the memory exactly. of Star Wars, isn't he, frankly? Yeah, but the point is is that it wasn't <laughs> that they weren't poor really because there wasn't an interesting story there to be told. There is. There's there's a wealth in, in that kind of in that catalogue of work to tell all the little bits in between and the story up to the point of a new hope. But I think that more importantly, it, it was just too much time elapsed. I mean, if you look at the you know, the films that we've We've talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly, or, or Temple of Doom. Whether you quibble about whether they're proper prequels or not, one of the reasons that they're probably of significantly high quality is they were made around the same time, and so therefore they had the same actors, they had the same people working on them, and so that 
assuming the people who worked on them had the same level of enthusiasm. It's hard to go 30 years and then come back to something and then be able to make anything decent. I mean, if Coppola made Godfather Part 2 today, would it be any good? Had he made Godfather 3, you know, straight after Godfather 2, would it be better, you know? It definitely would have been better than the film he did make 10, what, 15 years later. Yeah. To be honest, yeah. It's true. I mean, you're absolutely right. I think the fact that we can struggle to even think of two or three decent prequels suggests that that as as an endeavour, they are largely futile. <laughs> well, I mean, that, you have to look at one of the biggest franchises out there, which isn't Star Wars, and that's Star Trek. And uh, although it was a reboot, I mean, technically it was a prequel, wasn't it? I mean, the young yep. Kirk and yep. Spock and how they got together and so on. But then again, it wasn't in the same time frame, so does that count? Definitely a prequel, yeah. And what really? I'm the, the Scott back in the TV show, short-lived, but that was that told the story before you know Kirk's generation. So would yeah, that be it a was terrible? It, it was, was terrible. Was terrible. I didn't say I liked it. Yeah, you did. You love it. <laughs> I didn't love that one, but I do love track. Well, no. <laughs> well, this brings us on. To Let's the, not. This this brings us on to the important point, which is once once the original film is out there, whether you're making a prequel or a sequel. The fact is that people uh, take what they want to take from the original film and they, they're going to take the characters and, and what they think the characters are and, and, and the plot lines and so on. So you're never going to make a prequel or a sequel, which you're is going to please everybody. You're never going to set out to everybody. do one, are you? You're going to tell from, a story from beginning to end. There's your story. You don't make it with the idea, or at least most people don't make it with the idea, that you're going to do a follow-on to it. I mean, obviously some... Studio suits think that's going to be the policy for franchise movies and all that kind of caper. But basically, when you sit down to write a movie and direct a movie, that's the finished article when it goes up there. You're not thinking beyond it, and you're not thinking before it, are you? So obviously, when the um, if it gets successful, make more money. Well, how are we going to treat this one? Then how are we going to extend this? You want the same characters again? Okay, well there's a sequel, and then you exhaust that sort of avenue. So then you go backwards, and that's what happens with a a fair chunk of these prequels coming out. But but my point was that you're never going to keep everybody happy because um, everybody takes something different away from the original. So it doesn't matter how well written the the prequel is or, or the sequel. Um, you're never going to keep everybody happy. Doesn't stop them, though. <laughs> well, I suppose that was, point. that was the problem with the, a bit with Star Wars, wasn't it? Um, I mean, I, I, I'm... I'm covering the the prequel trilogy and it's it's really tough to write a, a positive review about them because uh, the there's so much uh, nostalgia in the old films um that the prequels just basically didn't stand a chance uh, they're um, also i mean terrible 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 films frankly yeah, yeah i think that he got a lot wrong about it but the, the thing everything thing, wrong the thing is, it still opened up uh, um, a part of the universe which people wanted to see. I mean, it still gave us um, umpteen numbers of like Jedi sword uh, saber fighting moments. And yeah, he made it, and it made them boring. <laughs> he made it boring. It was uh, that, that duel at the end of Sith. I think it goes on for five hours, isn't it? It's just <laughs> so monumentally boring and you don't care. And, it, and whereas if you watch this fight in Empire, it's brilliant. It's really exciting and you genuinely are concerned. Um, 
sorry, no, the, the, best, say, the best fight is definitely the one in Empire. Yeah, yeah but this I'd, is what I'd stand it, by that. This is what kind of worries me a bit, like by things like, you know, the prequel to the thing, which is like I I watched it again just the other day, and I'm always looking, thinking, what's in that ship? You know, I I want to see more of it, but you know yeah. that a certain amount of the film's draw is that to keep you wanting that. You know, I don't want, you know, a 90-minute a, a guided tour around the alien ship because it's never going to live up to my expectations. People wanted, oh, wouldn't it be cool if you had, you know, a dozen, you know, two dozen um, Jedi all fighting at the same time? You think it would. You think you want more yeah. of those things. But really, it's better when a filmmaker tempers that kind of, that kind of excitement like and the narrative right. and the backstory of people. If you've got a really interesting character, if you've got a, you know, a snake Pliskin, if you've got, you know, these kind of people, throw in something alluding to an interesting backstory, but never actually take us there and try to, you know, to write it unless you've actually got it in full. Because otherwise, whatever the viewer's thinking of, however great you think it will be, each viewer is going to come up with something slightly different as to why they kind of attach themselves to yeah. that, why they think it would be great. But when you go to show it, you know, it's like, you know, taking something, you know, Fabergé egg apart with a hammer or something. You go, oh, well, is that all it's made of? You know, it, it just Chris, ruins it. Chris said it best. It takes away all the mystery. Yeah. Um, it's this obsession with telling a backstory and filling in all the gaps. I don't want them to do that. The whole point is that that sense of mystery, the point, the idea that the Republic was something a long time ago and it's gone now, you know, and those were the glory days of the Jedi and what we're left with is like the last couple that are still alive. You know, that's the whole point of Star Wars. And, and I don't want, I don't really need And yeah, I'm still not opposed to all this. <laughs> I totally agree with almost everything you're saying, but I still want to see more. And I'm quite pleased that these things do exist uh, as badly flawed as the prequels are to Star Wars, and they are truly dire, but I still enjoy a lot of elements of them, and I'm glad that they exist. Uh, they don't, for me, they don't tarnish the original trilogy, uh, which is still, you know, unbelievable. Well, they, they don't tarnish the original trilogy. Unfortunately, his constant tinkering does. <laughs> well, that, that's another another debate, <laughs> isn't it? Let's now to our next topic. <laughs> our, our special Star Wars one. But the, you, see, you see, the thing was, though, for me, and I know we're going to come on to this on the, when we cover the Star Wars box set when it comes out, but the the thing for me was he took all the fun out of the prequels. That that was the problem. He took the fun out of it. You just have to look at the Clone Wars cartoons to see how much fun could have been had Yeah. where... You know, you were you were a couple of central characters. Uh, there's there's a bit of uh, fighting. There's a there's a bit of tension about what's going to happen and all the rest of it. Because the problem is, you know what's going to happen, but you can still build up that tension. I mean, look at Titanic. I mean, we all know what was going to happen to the ship, but it, it, it was all about the interaction and stuff before that, and 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 the tension and building up the characters and stuff like that. And and he keeps saying to us that it, there were kids' films. There weren't kids' films because you don't talk about politics in kids' films. Mm. I'm afraid. Well, that that was the yeah, the death knell. That for me, all, all the, yeah, the the senator stuff was absolute. Yeah, garbage. I mean, when the opening it didn't make stopped. sense even even to grown-ups. It was just pathetic. Well, when the opening crawl starts with the words "the taxation of outlying star systems," you know you're not in for a fun two hours, are you? Really? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Jar Jar Binks was a pretty fatal move as well. But you, see, yeah, but you see, Jar Jar Binks might have worked if it, if there was a bit more fun and a bit more energy and uh, 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 about what was actually going to happen within the films, um, because the the Ewoks they were terrible, but they oh, worked they worked God, yeah. in the scope of 
what was going on though. So yeah, they were know, pompous, weren't they? Frankly, pompous yeah. and boring. Yeah. So and also, he can't direct anymore. All of his exposition scenes are either done with people sat down or walking. <laughs> if you watch them again, you'll see it's all done with two shots and masters. It's like he just wanted to cheat them as quickly as possible and then get on with the effects. They're just really badly written, badly acted, badly <laughs> made films, and there's no other way. Of, you can't cut it any other way. That's, no, you, that's you won't get an line. argument from any of us on that score. Yeah, and, and I think we should wrap it up. But we because... still. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to that at a later date. <laughs> Let's wrap it up there because we're going to talk about, obviously, the Star Wars Blu-rays. Um, we're all going to get them when they come out. The next movies podcast is going to be a Star Wars special, so that's something to either look forward to or avoid. I would say look forward to because I've got a funny feeling that for an hour we're just going to rip them a bit, aren't we, Lance? Oh, yeah. Possibly. Mm. Also, stand by for the Games podcast. Uh, that's coming up on the 14th of this month. And uh, don't forget to follow us also on Twitter for all the biggest news AV Forums-wise. That's at AV Forums. Or for AV Forums behind-the-scenes stuff, if you want to know what we're reviewing, how things are panning out and that kind of thing, uh, then you can follow me at Phil Hinton. Or you can follow Steve at Stephen Withers, that's with a PH, uh, on Twitter. And you can also follow us on our Facebook page, which is Facebook-AV Forums. So that wraps up the Movies podcast for this month. All I need to do is thank the guys. Uh, so thanks very much for your time this evening. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Phil. Cheers. And don't forget, the next Movies podcast, the Star Wars special, uh, will be with you on the 7th of October. This is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. The AV podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content including sound clips and music is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.